Hello and welcome to Reading Between the Lines, the story podcast from the People's Friend in association with the Oddfellows. Each episode, a few of us from the Friend team delve into our archives to find a story to read and then sit down for a wee chat about it. So, make yourself a cuppa, pull up a chair and come join us. This episode, we're reading The Cup Final and the Trouser Tree by A.P. MacDonald, first published on the 15th of April, 1907. Reading the story is Friend Features Editor Alex. Over to Alex. The following is a true story, though I do not expect you to believe it. I have been telling the tale by many words of mouth for nearly two years now, but only once have I been rewarded with a faint gleam of success in the way of credence. I believe you, said the man who credited, and my heart throbbed wildly with gratified ambition. I believe you, but there's not one in a thousand who would. And yet I repeat that this story is true. Permit me to harp on this for a few paragraphs here and there. They fill up, and if they don't get cut out, they get paid for. So true is this story that indeed its very punctuation is the soul of integrity. More than once, I hurl myself against the guarded full stop, where a careless comma might have let me slip on into a phrase of excess. And thus, after the lapse of some two years, and the collapse of some 2,000 patient listeners, I rush into print with the story that I may blazon it abroad to the world at large and have done with it. When Newcastle United met Aston Villa in the final for the Football Association Cup, I went down with a friend to the Crystal Palace to see the match. He was Aston Villa, I was Newcastle United, and the result, which we learned on the ground and got confirmed in the football special editions later, was 2-0 against me. No, I did not see enough of the match to know any other way. Yes, I was there, as I have already stated, but if I have to answer questions on trivial points of detail such as these, we shall never get to the story proper. I have always noticed, when relating the anecdotes, people begin to want to cross-examine me at this stage. If readers will only wait, all will be thoroughly explained and disbelieved. Besides my friend and me, there were a lot of other people present. I should say well on for a hundred thousand. They were, to tell the truth, as guaranteed, far too numerous for us to stand any reasonable chance of seeing the match at all. My friend, whose name is Eccles, will bear me out in this. He was, and for the matter of that is, a most respectable man. Upon his sworn statement, which I hope to append, I greatly rely to bring home a conviction to the reader. This story is true. Well, we arrived on the ground at least two hours before the advertised time of the kickoff. We took up a nice position on some high ground and were thoroughly tired out with standing long before the referee started the game. The day had promised to be cool, even damp, and we had brought out Macintoshes. But the day broke its promise and simply glared down red-hot upon the sweltering crowd. The only cool things on the ground were the bizarre black-and-white umbrellas sported by great numbers of Novocastrians, who thus honoured their club's colours. Tired out, we, and thousands more around us, lay down to swelter in comfort. Fifteen minutes before the teams appeared, several fresh thousands, Brighton and jaded, newly arrived by special trains, rushed our position without a moment's warning. It was all we could do to scramble to our feet and save our lives and waterproofs before we were jammed back by the newcomers. The reaction came immediately, and a whole herd of us were rushed violently down the slope we had fondly called ours by right of prior occupancy. Finally, Eccles and myself, with hundreds more, were spewed out onto the lower and emptier level, between the top crowd and the dense front crowd around the ropes. And as soon as we found ourselves, safe and sound, where we couldn't see a thing, the match began. For a while we stood helpless and disconsolate, waiting for still fresher reinforcements to sweep us up the hill again. Of the match, at this juncture, we could see nothing, bar, occasionally, the ball when the Newcastle backs skied it in flurried attempts to stop the villainous rushes of the opposing forwards. And when the next discontented crowd came to our aid, it was of no use against the inertia of the lucky top dogs, 
who are now packed solid in their tens of thousands. So after a long time, during which, we heard that, the villain scored, we shifted our quarters to try our luck somewhere else. The next luck we tried was also bad. Very bad. On the other side of the vast enclosure was a new-looking structure, perhaps a temporary press box or something of the kind. It was as high as a house and it had a flat roof. Prospecting around it, we found a ladder lying invitingly on the ground, tucked close in at the back of the building. Though we knew we were doing wrong, yet, with considerable immoral courage, we erected the ladder and climbed up. Oh, the blissful rapture of the view we got to reward us for our ingenuity. But alas, our triumph was short-lived. A horde of other would-be spectators rushed to the foot of the ladder to follow our bad example. A policeman noticed the movement and crushed it. So far as that went, he was quite right. A roof of laths couldn't be expected to stand the weight of a mob of football enthusiasts. It took all its egg box strength just to bear us. And we were getting on nicely by ourselves. But our little game had been given away by its popularity. It is a strange thing that a man cannot invent an innocent little iniquity for his own private use without having a host of imitators infringing his patent. Come out of it, yelled Robert to us. We didn't hear him, of course. Great enthusiasm prevailed, and the crowd was shouting themselves hoarse at the desperate efforts of Newcastle to equalise. The constable, in the execution of his duty, bawled a lot of rude things at us, but, not hearing them, we paid no attention to him. As history shows, when the mountain wouldn't come to Mohammed, there was nothing for it but to reverse the engine, and so Robert Mohammed was presently mounting the ladder. We tried to look pleased to see him when he crawled over and shook us by the scruffs of our swan-like necks. His own smile was something similar. He said it was like our beastly necks to give him all this trouble for nothing. We asked him wherein we had done wrong, and he replied most affably that we would jolly soon find out when we got penal servitude for life if we didn't get hung straight off the reel as we deserved. Seeing he was so pressing, we had to yield to his blandishments and move back to the ladder whence we came. With one last fond glance at two rival halfbacks joyously charging each other down, we reluctantly moved to the edge. But when we got there, the ledge board was bare, and so the poor policeman didn't know what to do. It seemed that no sooner had the constable climbed onto the roof than the vengeful crowd he thwarted had removed the ladder, and with a laudable desire for tidiness, put it neatly back in its proper place. In vain, Constable Triple X called upon the evildoers to bring back the ladder. As usual, nobody had done it, and so he turned and wreaked his awful rage on us, poor harmless wretches, now straining our vision once more on the fateful playing pitch. I don't know whether to kick you off hard or drop you down gently, he growled considerately, but you can bet your boots you'll have to pay sweetly for this. I suppose the scoundrels who shifted the ladder are your confederates. Wasn't that a lovely punt, sighed Eccles absentmindedly, as the Aston right back cleared his lines with marked abandon. Oh, it was nothing wonderful, minimised the Bobby, straying from business. His sympathies, such as they were, clearly ran with the Northerners. It was easy enough to kick big when he had no forwards on top of him worrying him. Here, his own worries cropped up again and he drew out a small notebook. I shall have to take you fellows' names and addresses over this job. It'll fill up the time, and you never know but what the inspector's looking. Stop staring at the match now and spit them out. You first. This, to me, bother him, just when things were looking up a bit with Newcastle too. My name, did you say? I asked, meekly clearing my throat. Yes, your full name. Oh, my full name. All right. Agamemnon. Haga, who? Spell it. I spelt it and resumed. Pythagoras. Spell it, he again interrupted, which I did. It was the queerest spelling bee I ever took part in. Heliogabalus. Are we near the end yet, or is this where you live now? Spell it. Duly spelt and written down, policeman virtuously turning over a new leaf to do it. Pygmalion. I don't want to know whether you keep pigs for a living, or only for a hobby. I wanted your Christian names. Not the names of a lot of heathen images and whatnot. What's your last name? Stubbs. Shall I spell it? He is the world-famous author of Stubbs Gazette, you know, put in Eccles dutifully. 
You'll fill a page in the Police Gazette yourself by and by if you ain't careful, cautioned the constable. Shell out your own name now. I only allow two goes this time, first and last. John Eccles. Short for Jonathan Ecclesiastes, I suppose. Profession? Gentleman. He doesn't really make money at it, you understand, constable, I intervened helpfully. He only professes to be one. He doesn't practice. His profession's that of a storyteller, reciprocated Eccles. You'd better not practice on me, anyhow, warned Bobs. Just freeze on the United Centre, I burst in. He'll equalise, as sure as oysters. The unreliability of oysters when shooting for goal was here strikingly illustrated, for the centre shot wide. How gladly would we have extended our delightful two minutes parley with the policeman in full view of the match. But it was not to be. Another policeman hove in sight, and in response to our own private policeman's call, the ladder was again reared, and down we regretfully had to clamber. I offered to give R. Robert some more of my nom de plume, and Eccles was willing to invent a few fictitious addresses, but the policeman said he was tired and told us to run away and play. If the reader belongs to the fair sex, or being male that takes no stock in football, she or he may think that, after this reverse, we wouldn't make any more attempts to see the match. Wouldn't we indeed? And just didn't we? After this reverse, we initiated no fewer than four more distinct campaigns of agreeably diversified character, with the avowed object of seeing another scrap or two of the match, or perishing in the attempt. To miss out the description of them is simply to waste good copy, and throw away good money. And yet, I cannot do more than barely allude to one or two of them ere I retell the grand finale. On the ground were men with an invention which theoretically enabled one to see over the heads of the crowd. Roughly speaking, the contrivance consists of a mirror hoisted on the top of a pole. It is fixed at an angle which enables it to reflect what it sees in a second mirror nearer Mother Earth. I tried one for sixpence. But with 50 other people trying to look over my shoulders for nothing, it didn't work well in practice. I got my camera obscura into focus by sheer brute strength. Eccles staved off the surging crowd like a Hercules, while I held onto the machine with both hands and one eyeball, which was nearly gouged out and trodden on every time I winked. Having obtained my focus, I found myself merely looking down the back of somebody else's neck. I could hardly expect to see much of the match there, could I now? There was far more of the obscura than the camera about the invention. It requires perfecting with steel barriers around the operator or some such simple addition. For the next attempt we made to see the field of play, we paid dearly. Some trampish-looking individuals came along bearing a trestle table. We asked no questions as to where they had stolen it, and they only asked us for two shillings each for the privilege of standing on it. The worst of it was that they asked too many people the same question, with the consequence that we and the other mugs who boarded the pirate craft walked the plank. More correctly speaking, we walked through the plank the instant we could say, we are seven. The most of the seven, however, did not confine themselves to poetry in what they said, and shocked, we once more moved away to a fresh place. In that corner of the spectatorial ground, which was nearest the Penge entrance, Eccles picked up what he said was a great bargain. Some honest sons of toil had torn up, by the very roots, one of those heavy iron-bound and iron-backed forms which one sees in public parks. They are very strong, but their only ornaments are the lovers who occasionally sit on them. One of these benches had been lugged from some far away sunny climb in another portion of the palace grounds and had been planted near a pole of some sort. For sixpence, net leases were allowed by the temporary landlords to stand on the top rail of this bench, from which it was possible to get a bird's-eye view of the game in the plain below. To steady oneself, one had to hold on to his next neighbour, the whole responsibility for balance ultimately resting with the right-hand man, who hugged the pole in fond embrace for all he was worth. Bang went another sixpence each from us two jugginses. Up we went, I to cling convulsively to the left biceps of a brawny sailor man. His cap betokened that he belonged to HMS Towser, or some such elegantly named and dignified battleship. Eccles clung still more convulsively to me, pinching my left arm black and blue. And so on, right along the rail, and I can only imagine the swaying unit at the extreme left having a fit the whole time. 
Presently, I got down to have a standing rest on terra firma, Eccles hooking onto the sailor man. And here the strange thing happened, which nobody who doesn't know me personally, and only one of those who do, will credit. The tall, stately trees at our backs were, as is usual at a big palace match, literally black with men and boys, perched on the branches like crows. I turned round and was glancing aimlessly about me when, just my luck, another goal was got, with me not in a position to see it. I could see it was Villa that had scored, because Eccles was making precisely such an exhibition of himself, under difficulties, as I should have made had Newcastle scored. Everywhere, save in the staunch bosoms of Newcastle supporters like myself, pandemonium reigned supreme. But as I gazed around in cool, collected wonder at the insensate folly of people getting so excited over a mere goal, I got such a shock that I haven't quite got over it yet. Right from the loftiest bough of the tallest tree, as it seemed to me, there fell a man who had climbed that dizzy height. From branch to branch he crashed and crackled, making frantic snatches at ever-snapping twigs and ever-treacherous boughs. All eyes save mine were naturally fixed on the field at the moment of the goal. Or, if some chance tree-dweller saw the man falling, what could he do but avert his gaze in horror, as I did mine, when the last crash came and the poor fellow came hurtling to the ground? When I looked again a second or two later, the tragedy was over. Low comedy, so frightfully low as to verge on the vulgar, had taken its place. The man was on his feet, unhurt, I am glad to state, with hardly a scratch to show. But oh, what a surprised look he wore. I wore. We both wore. For, gentle reader, believe me, I blush as I write it. In the Darwinian descent of that man, his trousers had stayed on the tree. There he stood, poor fellow, in his undergarments, shaking his head woefully at me, his only sympathiser. Nobody else, so far as I could gather, had seen the accident. And it took us both all our time to see the trousers. For the worst of it, from his point of view, at the foot of the tree, has yet to be told. Not only were the indispensable garments hanging up far out of reach amidst broken boughs, bursting buds and other sentimental surroundings, but they weren't hanging in the same place. One leg flapped, in moody Newcastle fashion, on the early summer breeze about 40 feet up. The other one waved a triumphant well done to the villains from very near the top of the tree whence the man had fallen. Even that wasn't the worst of it, for both sections had got ripped open from top to bottom, and were now mere aprons. There are beautiful stories knocking about. I have even tried to write some myself concerning rich men who give their priceless fur overcoats to poor, shivering beggars on the spur of the moment. So well they might, and good luck to them, but I feel sure nothing would induce these rich men, chivalrous as they might be, to hand over their priceless tweed trousers at a moment's notice. At any rate, anxious though I was to help the man, and show sympathy in practical form, I didn't give him mine. For many a good cause I would willingly sacrifice wealth and fame, and all the other things I don't have and don't expect, but never my one new pair of pantaloons. If I'd had some to spare now, I'd have given him a complimentary pair with the author's compliments, but I never did believe in the extravagant practice of wearing two pairs at once. Still, I did what I could for him. The man was naturally too much shaken down to climb up again, and, as it happened, there was nobody else on his particular tree which was very far back, to render any aid. So I drew the man of warsman's attention to the poor wretch's predicament, and he took in the situation at a glance. Leaving his pole for the moment, he ran over to the tree, swarmed up it like a monkey, reached one rag, rolled it up like a cannonball, and shot it clear of the tree to the ground. Ditto with number two rag. Then he scrambled down and ran back to his post without exhibiting any trace of emotion other than eagerness to behold the finish of the match. Good lad that he was, may HMS Towser have promoted him long ere this. I thereupon turned myself into a kind of canvassing agent for pins and assisted the victim to tinker up a very respectable pair of garments in which he might proceed on his way home rejoicing that things were no worse. I should fancy Adam's first effort at bifurcated garments would closely resemble that pair and cut and finish, but they did. And now you ask me for a line with a story, and I give it to you. Please swallow and digest what Mr. Eccles says.
I hereby swear that as I did not see the trouser tree incident, I cannot hold myself responsible for what really happened or did not happen in that connection. At the same time, the other incidents appear to me to be as reasonably true as should be expected from any penny-a-line paragrapher who has his living to earn as honestly as he can. It is the case that the liner and the sailor left me very much in the lurch on such occasions as they jumped overboard. Now that I remember too, the storyteller borrowed two pins from me, all I had, near the close of the match, though I do not recollect any attempt at paying them back. Signed, John Eccles. Could anything be more circumstantial or convincing than that? Reading Between the Lines is proud to be sponsored by Friendship Society, The Oddfellows. If you've ever wondered what being a member of The Oddfellows means, we're delighted to be able to share some first-hand answers. My name is Shirley Burnett. My branch is Leicester. The Oddfellows is a friendly society in every way. It's helped during lockdown, during the pandemic, and even now. It is always on hand with a listening ear. Hi, I'm John Bradley from Worcester District. I joined the Other Fellows when I was 17 because they had a youth club and a football team which I wanted to be part of. I'm now in my 80s and I've enjoyed a lifetime of friendship and social activities and I'd recommend it to anybody. True friendships provide us with memories that we cherish for a lifetime. They help us to grow and become better people, and they help us to make a better society. For over 200 years, The Oddfellows has helped its members forge friendships and offered help in times of need. So why not give them a call today on 0800 028 1810 for a free information pack, or visit oddfellows.co.uk to find your local branch. Everyone's welcome. Now, let's get back to the story. Let me top up my coffee, grab some of my friends, and we'll have that little chat about it. That was the cup final and the trouser tree, brilliantly read by Alex, who is also joining us today. Hello, Alex. Hello. We also have Tracy from the fiction team. Hello, Tracy. Hello. And Barry from the DC Thompson Archives. Hello, Barry. Hello. Um, now... This story is quite different to anything we've done before, I think, in that it's written as a true recounting of events. Um, And the first time I met Barry in person after starting this job, he requested that we put this story in the next season of the podcast. So, Barry, how did you come across this one and why were you so adamant to include it (laughs) in this season? I have been petitioning for this to be included since season one, I think. Oh, wow, okay. So this is, I think, the fourth, maybe fifth AP MacDonald story that we've covered. Uh, In fact, our pilot episode was one of his McPeever's Wrangles, of which I'm a huge fan. And in the course of researching AP MacDonald, I came across this oddity. (laughs) And it is so weird and so completely... Uh, almost unpeople's friend-ish, very unusual. There Mm -hmm. is no romance. Nobody gets married at the end of this. Um, And I I just, I love it. It is, it's an intriguing, intriguing story, if you can call it that. Mm -hmm. In fact, I actually went looking at the volume because Mm -hmm. I wasn't sure what, how they sort of categorized it. But it is, was within the short fiction section, not features. Um, Interesting. So, I mean, it's, on one level, I mean, there's so many levels in which to enjoy this story. I love it just for the, the way it bounces along the the writing itself. I mean, that's what the story is about. This story isn't about a cup final or indeed a trouser tree. It is about A.P. <laughs> MacDonald. It is about the artist and his art, I would argue. It's incredibly self-aware writing. Very self-aware. Breaking every, all the fourth wall kind of thing, like speaking directly through the pages. 
And part of me did wonder whether it was a true story, because it literally says, the cup final of the trouser tree, a true story, brackets, for a change, <laughs> by A.P. McDonald. And I'm like, and I was just wondering, I was like, is so is this genuinely a true recounting of events? Or is this, he has written a fiction about someone who is recounting events? Do you know what I mean? But I do think it is a true you're meant story. To, you're meant to question that. I mean, if you weren't, he would have just said, the cup final and the trouser tree, a true story, end of brackets. Uh-huh. But at last, and, and right from the very start, he just gleefully undermines his own credibility because he wants his showing off. This is A.P. McDonald. This is, his real name is George Andrew Holm. Um, I think he's a fantastically talented writer. Everything we've read of his, everything we've covered of his so far has just been a joy. Um, and this feels to me, on one level, that this could have been an anecdote that he's recounted to the editor and the editor has said we should we should do something with this on the other hand i think this is recognition of a talent that we have and let's just give him free reign he's earned his keep very much because at this point um as far as i can tell this is the last we see of ap mcdonald in the people's friend he may well appear elsewhere but um, he sort of burst onto the scene around about 1904, I think it was. He had two very successful series. Um, Leo Fantasy is something maybe we should look at for a further season. I don't get it. It's one of these things that every time you read about the, the editor says, oh, we've got another one coming next week, these rib-ticklingly funny things. I mean, I they pass me by, I don't get them, but the McPeever wrangles mm -hmm. are fantastic. And as we established in the pilot episode, he sent a copy of this to Mark Twain, and Mark Twain was blown away. You know, he gave this amazing review. You can't get any higher praise than that. <laughs> but this is, um, he, he did a, a couple of other things. Um, but yeah, this this just felt like, in some ways, maybe a bit indulgent, maybe overindulgent, mm -hmm. but... I mean, every line, the, the writing just makes me smile. It is, it is brilliantly funny. And I was going to ask, I was like, do you think that he had to give like a pitch or a brief? Or do you think he just got free reign to write what he wanted? Because I just, I just can't imagine him going like, thinking about writing about the football game I went to at the weekend. And the editor being like, yeah, that sounds, <laughs> sounds about right. But then here we are talking about it like a hundred years later. <laughs> So, so, but, but what did you guys think? Did you think, did you read it and think, yes, this, this is something that's actually happened to him? What do you think he was doing with it? I, part of me wants to believe it was real because it is so ridiculous. But what was in his bovril if he was there and this <laughs> happened? I, I don't know. It, it, it's so unfriend-like, though. Mm -hmm. it, I couldn't quite believe it when I started reading it. It was, no, what, what's going on here? This is just bizarre. And what else is bizarre that they go to the match two hours before it starts? It's just, um, but it, it's just strange but funny. Yeah. I mean, I... Maybe there's a reason that Ian never let it in the podcast before, and he was just like, "Yeah, sure." Ian just couldn't <laughs> handle the weird. No, I think it's I think it's really clever. I mean, all the way through. I mean, oh, this is about him. Sort of, this is his. It's like a dialogue with his readership, and now they turn up, like you say, two hours ahead of the match. So it's two men, two teams, two halves, two hours ahead of the match. Um, and this is a recurring thing of all the way through that sort of first five or six paragraphs. The number two appears about half a dozen maybe more times and you know the state of being double is in archaic terms duplicitous and i think this guy's clever enough smart enough to know this and i think he doesn't treat his readers as idiots he, he usually brings them in on it and brings them in on what he's up to and look how many times he just draws attention to the artifice of what he's doing and, you know, the reasons behind it. How many times does he refer to the fact he's being paid for this? My, and the more he fills in, the more he gets paid. My favourite line is, permit me to harp on this for a few paragraphs here and there. They fill up and if they don't get cut out, they get paid for. So I just love how he's like, I'm just, I'm just going to rant at you for like a page and you're going to let me do it because I'm getting paid. <laughs> just is such a boldness to it but like you say i think the readers would have been like good on you on and you go if you look at the actual plot for for all that it is the whole thing's about shifting perspectives all the way through every time he stands on something or gets a periscope or you know climbs up um mm -hmm. and i like the love the idea he's gone on top of this ramshackle uh, <laughs> press box 
and you know, sort of a temporary structure, like he's questioning the validity and the, the authority of the fourth estate. Yeah. I mean, it's, he's just, he's clever enough to have done that. And just um, the general cheekiness towards authority. and. Well, again, I mean, he doesn't even ascribe a proper name to the constable. He gives him a number at one point, he calls him Bob and Robert, you know, as in Robert Peel. Um, and all the way through, all the all the pseudonyms he gives himself as well. I mean, look at... The reason I kind of I, I like this, um, I guess, as well, because it does tells me something about this guy. Um, I actually found after the last time we covered a McDonald's story, I found um, like a little profile that people's friends used to do this in their editorial notes from time to time with mm -hmm. the with their uh, the writers, and usually they're quite straight laced. But on this occasion, Mister McDonald was given I free reign. I can only imagine. This is in this is in nineteen oh five. I think it was. And this is kind of not quite at its peak, and the McPeevers are just taking off, and then uh, them and the Leo fantasy stories are about to be uh, serialised and put into novels, all of which sold very well. So, I have written under various pretexts and aliases uh, during the eight years of my literary career some 200 stories all told, appearing for the most part in various London papers. So straight away, he's already alluding to the fact that A.M.P. McDonald's is almost a character. This mm -hmm. is something he's adopted, adapted or adopted rather for the people's friend, I think. Um, and A.P. McDonald's actually his wife's uh, initials. Uh, she's Ag Agnes Paul McDonald. So he's just taken her name. So mm -hmm. he's written all these stories, 200 old stories, with who knows how many pseudonyms. And you just have to guess where he's dropped them in. Um, and he talks about himself in a very, you know, a very similar way to what you see in this story. He says, Some editors have been kind enough to tell me that I possess the priceless gift of humour, and I do try to live up to it. But I do notice these editors can all reckon up this priceless gift of mine at so much per thousand words with painful exactitude. <laughs> so, <laughs> I mean, again, <clears throat> this is him just drawing, a, drawing attention to the fact that he is a writer. Now, he's not just a writer, he's a coalman to trade. Mm -hmm. And if you see in the census records, he actually says coal salesman and journalist, oh. uh, which I think is, you know, very, that in itself is very yeah. people's friend. Yeah. But I, I just get the impression this is a character. This is some, a persona he's adopted, and uh, once it's run its course, he's dropped it and possibly mm -hmm. moved on to something else. Possibly, again, the people's friend. I haven't found it, but uh, I live in hope. Because I, I do think that this event very much could have happened, or elements, elements of it very much could have happened, but it's obviously exaggerated, and he's probably added the humour and added some dialogue. And But I did particularly... Um, when we were talking about aliases, like when he's running through all these different <laughs> names, as someone who's like very, very kind of into sort of Greek mythology and the classics and stuff, and he's just bringing up like Agamemnon. <laughs> like, I think we struggled a wee bit with some of them. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, I must just admit, that one. I ummed and ahed about including it because it wasn't like proper <laughs> fiction that we usually see. And I was, I was like, yeah, Barry, I'll include it, don't worry. And then I read it and I was like, oh. Will I? I don't know if this does this suit, does this not? I was like, do you know what? We'll try, you know, it's something different. It'll give us something new to talk about, which it definitely has. And then listeners can let us know if they liked hearing something different or if they liked it or what else they might like to hear from our archives. Um, but yeah, I just, it, it definitely was a conversation starter. Mm -hmm. It was completely different. It was completely different. It wasn't too tricky to read, but I, I, I must admit this is one that I'd, I'd only got about two thirds of the way through reading before we came down to actually do uh -huh. the recording. So it did, as it gets, as you actually get to the, I mean, there's so much, once you realise what the premise of it is, which is quite lean, <laughs> basically <laughs> what happens at the end. Um, you know, it, just the absurdity of it, just completely. Talk, talking about reading it, and this is the point where Alex will probably want to take his headphones off because he doesn't want to hear his own voice back. Um, but it was, it was it, it did have its intended effect because Alex tripped up over the big reveal. <laughs> so I'm going to play a clip just so you can hear it. And it took us both all our time to see the trousers. <laughs> I'm really sorry. And it took us both all our time to see the trousers. <laughs> I will stop it there, but um, isn't that yes. isn't that glorious though? I mean, this story. I mean, he actually builds up quite well because what happens isn't that outrageous, and it's say. not. I don't think it's that. 
implausible even because if you actually if you go to the Wikipedia page for this particular cup final, you can see the trees in the background and you can just it looks like there are people in them. So it's not implausible. Um, I think it, it's you know it's, ent- it's entirely possible. You know the the joke of it for his perspective is that no one else, everyone was watching the game and he watched something else entirely. Um, and I don't think it is that that outrageous but by the time you get there i think he's built it up mm. and i think you're ready for because the trouser tree even the even the title is quite intriguing yeah mm. i mean the first I time read it i yeah. actually i actually he goes on and on about how un- unbelievable and shocking it is and and like you say it's not actually that <laughs> like mental i was a bit disappointed and i very much feel like it's like doing buzzfeed clickbait a hundred yeah. years before it's yeah. a thing <laughs> he's like you will never guess what happened to me <laughs> and it's like and it's oh. something pretty normal <laughs> I, i'm choosing to believe it did happen yeah. i'd like to think it did happen because well, like there I, is something funny about people's trousers <laughs> evidently <laughs> or just the word trousers yeah. apparently i don't know i don't know what happened it was just it just caught me out of the blue it was it just was so just... absurd but like you said it was the build-up to it that was just so protracted and by the time we actually got there and it was the moment was it's the writing it's so vivid in my head this moment where the two of them are looking at each other and he's not watching the match and everybody's turned around the other way and it's just completely involved and they just and the guy the fact the guy just hits the ground and just gets up and just sort of shrugs <laughs> and he's like left my pants in the tree <laughs> as you do and they're just separate um strips as well yeah like yeah the rips. two legs one's um, higher up and the other one's lower down and he just falls through it in a sort of cartoonish fashion just bouncing and off his branch. just the, the fact that it ends on his like um declaration from his friend yeah that this is yeah it was like i hereby swear that i did not see but he borrowed a pin from me yeah. blah blah signed I, I want i want to believe it's true as well because i just, how would you why would you make yeah. that? Why would you make that? Well, if you're gonna yeah. make it up it'd be a bit more fantastical would it <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah it's relative it's not that out of the world, no. out of this world. I mean, it's not that. Especially knowing that Barry's in pictures of, of people up, yeah. actually That's up quite, in that I'm tree. Google that after. That's quite interesting. <laughs> I love the fact that we're even debating whether it's true or not. Because then AP <laughs> McDonald has done his job because he's created this thing that could be true. Yeah. But at the end of this, he said, could anything be more circumstantial or convincing than that? And this is something, this is one of the other reasons this leapt out, because we, one of the McPeevers wrangles we covered was about uh, a football story. And Ian at the time made the point that isn't that very unusual to see a football story in the people's friend? It's like, well, it was. Uh, and not unknown, but um, mm-hmm. uh, very unusual to see anything about sport uh, in the people's friend. And, but here's this absolute oddity based around a cup final, not something you'd expect anyway. And yeah. right from the start, it just pulls the rug under, I, oh, right from under the reader, I think. And I, I'm not 100% convinced. I think, to me, this is showboating. This is something, I almost feel at some some points in this, this is him just saying, I wonder how far I can push this. Yeah, not just in terms of words, you know, per thousand words, but how far can I push this? How far can I push this particular medium? Knowing as he does, the people's friend. And the McPeevers wrangles themselves. I mean, the humour in them, again... Uh, Alex will like the fact that nobody gets married at the end of they're already married they've been married for some time and that's kind of the joke you know mm-hmm. they've got this long-standing relationship but when you get some of the I mean weirdly enough the other story about the football he does I wish I'd looked this up before we came in he, he does this other thing at the end of that which almost subverts his credibility or the credibility of the the narrator and it's just what he's doing this whole thing is about him you know putting forward this idea that he is the unreliable unreliable narrator or is he yeah and he's just having fun and i've i've got too many things highlighted on my pages to, to i mean i just loved all of it but the the bit where the policeman was trying to take the names i thought was just so good so good i but mean talk, talking about the um you know you wouldn't put football in the people's friend or or sports in general, and okay, maybe you know it's not that common. But then I was, and I was thinking, like, oh, is is that so ridiculous? Because I I can imagine 
I mean, women still like football. I'm sure they still enjoyed football, even, you know, at this time. And also, at this point, it's still very much like a family paper and magazine. So the kids reading it, kids would love this. Like, the kids would have found this hilarious. So in terms of that being, like, for the family, it actually does really work. So is it that ridiculous that there's, it's a story about a cup final in The People's Friend? And even in sort of more modern times because like oh we, we won't do anything about football now and then I was like well hang on yeah we've just done footballs about the English about the women's England football team and stuff like that so I was like yes we would maybe I'm just so sort of because I'm on the fiction team but this does smack of a great indulgence <laughs> to me I just think you know I can imagine trying to run that past Angela now and you'd just get a smile and a shake of the head so <laughs> I don't know it, it does feel a bit like he's getting away with something he shouldn't and he's he has been indulged yeah and is would we ever do not just that it's first person but it's from the author's perspective like I really don't think we've no ever had anything like that do we would we do stories even from sort of first person like I this and and sometimes we do but not to sort of this this extent it, it it's just like a, a it's almost like a comedy match report it's not a story yeah. Or written as a story, so we certainly wouldn't. On that note, how would we adapt this for the friend today? <laughs> what would you do to it? With great difficulty. I don't know. Imagine sending this idea out to a writer. Um, I suppose you could, but I think we would cut at least half the words. We don't indulge. No, is there any author that we would let them just yeah do you know what i can write about think, themselves i can think of one um we have a lovely author who's very good at sort of having comedy and you know a bit of heart in his stories as well and i know he likes football um so he would have a, a go at this and probably as a, a sort of conventional um short story it would work and i'm already writing the illustration brief in my mind <laughs> we say oh, then. what would what would you illustrate for this what would you have done for this story um well you know you wouldn't have the trouser tree because that's giving it away entirely but you would have a florid faced policeman i would have some pie and bovril it would be a montage obviously <laughs> um and more of a general football um Jumpers for goalposts sort of yeah. feel that's that that type of thing, I but like, unfortunately we could have a a sort of small, almost hidden pair of trousers somewhere that you wouldn't really notice <laughs> at first, sort of hidden breaks. <laughs> I like the scene where they're all. I, I couldn't quite picture out what it is they're actually doing, but the scene where they're all hanging on to each other mm. somewhere they're, st- they're stood on something and they're all stood like on hanging on for dear life yeah and, and it's like they're balancing momentum that's keeping them all upright kind of thing they're all leaning on the person next to them it's, yeah it's that one as well and then he's hanging on to the, the biceps of some brawny the, guy the yeah. potential <laughs> for disaster is quite high yeah, though I, health um, and safety health and safety these days <laughs> and noticeably the only person who's dealing well with that is the sailor because he's used to the motion the, the sailor from hms Towser, which um <laughs> wasn't around at that time so that's another little clue as to i think the fabrication Ah, of this story trouser 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 yeah there you go (laughs) that's interesting i didn't even think to check that that's funny i mean it even says in the the text his profession's that of a storyteller he's telling the readers what he's doing i'm (laughs) sorry I love it. I love the fact that when he, the policeman asks uh, his friend uh, John Eccles, says profession, gentleman, he doesn't really make any money at it, you understand, Constable. He only professes to be one. He doesn't practice. That's beautiful. The dialogue is hilarious. Like The dialogue is funny. Like It's probably one of the funniest things I read in The Friend. Um, but then is The Friend inherently meant to be that funny? I don't know. Yeah. What do you think? Like, How much would we actually put in? Um, this was just out and out fun, wasn't it? And I suppose back then you wouldn't have had a lot of this sort of thing at all, especially in the fiction. So, you know, it's a bit of a, a something for everyone. I think you were saying very much a family and you could imagine the mum or dad reading it out to the kids and them having a good old laugh about it. So yeah, a little bit of, um, a little bit of fun between the romance and 
what have you sometimes maybe needed as well but it's certainly unusual mm-hmm. I mean it's got everything it's got a really clever wordplay it's got great dialogue and slapstick humour what's what's missing it's quite, it is very slapstick but even the way when they're up on the the platform and the police officer comes up but then the ladders disappear and it's like oh great and then he just starts chatting about the football match as well <laughs> they distract him what is it? just freeze on the United Centre I burst in he'll equalise sure as oysters unreliability of oysters when shooting for goal was here strikingly illustrated <laughs> and just glorious it's not to love I'm actually just going to put a little break in while I google if this is actually a cup final because would it been it was a cup final mm-hmm. 1905 it was Aston Villa versus Newcastle what and was the score 2-0 so what yeah. did he say the score was in this yeah it was 2-0 two two nil. Nil. I don't is. think he alludes to, does he yes he does you, you follow the score by the number of times he misses the, the, the goals going in because he's doing other <laughs> things it's actually very visual like you can see that like I can yeah. see that on a TV show do you know what I mean it's what would it, and what would the standard be? Because presumably we are quite a long way away from a modern stand that would have been completely enclosed. Although it sounds like there was obviously like a stand, maybe at one or two ends, and then just like a hill a at one all, end, yeah. or yeah, pretty much. I mean, um, oh yeah, again, the wiki page will show you exactly how it looks. Um, it is quite an open-looking thing, Sorry. but with what was a hundred thousand people crammed into it, it would have been it wouldn't have been pleasant. I don't think. Was he making that up? That's no, I, it, I think it was 100,000. Really? Um, yeah, I mean, that, that wasn't unusual. Big yeah. crowds you know, of that size and, um, back yeah. then when health and safety obviously wasn't a chief, obviously a concern of any description. Um, I mean, I've seen some great pictures in our archive of um, games in Dundee where you see people hanging out of windows and on <laughs> roofs of things. But I mean, this takes it to a whole new level. <laughs> this description of men in trees like crows and it, you can you can picture it. <laughs> you've paid you've paid your shilling or whatever it is to get in, and you want to see this game, and the crowd's in your way, and you, you know people have come down from Newcastle to London to see this, and uh, basically all they're hearing is this, the crowd reaction. It's not much of it's not much of an experience, really. It's very much like a cartoon of the like. It's a bit Tom and Jerry. I mean, it's like something you want to achieve, and you keep trying these more and more ridiculous ways to get it that just keep going stupidly wrong (laughs) (laughs) his earliest series the Leo fantasy um, again I'm I'm not a huge fan of but again there's a lot of slapstick and a lot of that kind of humour in there and it's all very exaggerated and cartoon like or comic like maybe more well it's very cool that even after all this time we're still talking about it can still make you laugh today which is is, you know uh, quite the feat I think that's quite interesting with it. There's like a, there's obviously what is essentially a periscope mentioned at some point, but without calling it a periscope. And I'm either just kind of like quite scientifically curious whether it hadn't been invented and hadn't been given a name or something. Well, it would have oh. has been invented. It clearly had yeah. been invented, but hadn't been given a name. Submarines didn't exist yet. Like, I don't know. Quite, I guess what, quite, it went into quite a bit of detail explaining how it worked. Which, which made me wonder is it does the name exist or did he just decide? I can do another 200 words on this without using the name. <laughs> and that's another. I think you've answered your own question. Yeah. And I think, I think, I might be wrong, but I think submarines had at least, uh, it wasn't the first full submarine around in the civil, American Civil War. I'm sure there was one. Oh. So I think this idea is, it is basically just a camera obscura by any yeah. other name. In fact, I think he says so in the, um, in the, in the writing. But I think you've answered your own question. Why use one word when I'm being indulged? And you know, why not? Is, is he gonna, is he being cheeky then? Is he is he not just the humour of it, but him also deliberately stretching I the text? To I go. think that's part of the joke. Yeah. I think yeah. he's uh, yeah. and he's you know and and you know he's been allowed to. Yeah, I mean maybe this was even longer. Who can tell? But you know this is again this is a star writer. This guy had these two series and they were both put into books very early on and republished. I mean, it's a really good way to make a profit from something you've already published. So there were like 13 McPeever wrangles and I think the last of these had just come out or maybe a few months earlier. And so it might have been the case that they were like, well, wonder what other gold he's got up his sleeve. Let's indulge him this time mm-hmm. and see what yeah. else comes and again I don't I haven't seen any more E.P. McDonald later than this um, again I live in maybe hope. this was like his swan song like his last thing and it was like do you know what do what you want and he was like 
I will. Maybe. <laughs> to throw maybe. something absolutely mental. I'd like to point out to any potential writers listening to this, we do not pee by the word. So it's a set. A set. Pee. Don't get any ideas. So before you go to any cup finals. Uh... <laughs> oh, well, five star ratings. This is going to be a hard one to rate because you can't really compare it to any of our other stories. Um, but I will start with Alex. I, I, <laughs> you're right, it's really tricky. I think, not because it's especially strong or especially involving, but just because it's just so unexpected and it just made me laugh like solidly for at least three minutes. I'm going to give it a five. Yeah, <laughs> go on, why not? Yeah, go for it. Tracy? Well, at first when I read it, I thought, mm, bit of an own goal here. Oh, it's not a wow. short story. A lot of it felt offside, the dialogue. <laughs> but then I was won over and I'm going to give it a four and not an extra time for the final whistle. I did enjoy it. It was great fun and it was something completely different as well. So yeah. I am also going to give it a four um, because it is hilarious. It's obviously quite different. But then thinking on it, I actually don't think it is that ridiculous for the friend because it's very family friendly, you know, for this time. Even if it's about football, I don't think, you know, they were interested. I imagine they were just as interested in football. <laughs> um, Barry, I'll, I'll, I think I know what you're going to say, but Barry, what do you think? I'm just amazed Tracy missed the obvious with the torn trousers, a game of two halves. I mean, <laughs> Tracy, let yourself... No flies on you. <laughs> no, let yourself... I mean, was it in doubt? This is going to be a five-star from me because I am such a fan. I love it. It is so unusual. Again, nobody got married. I'm very happy with this. Uh, and I just, I would love to see this go back in the friend now. Well, I think we shall leave it there on with the, the legacy that is AP McDonald's. Thank you, Alex, for reading the story for us, to Tracy and Barry for joining us for the discussion, and to you for listening. All that's left for me to say is until this week group of friends gets together again for another story from the friend to you. Cheerio. Thanks again for joining us for this episode of Reading Between the Lines. Follow on your podcast app today so you don't miss out on our next story, and check our previous episodes for more from the friend archives. We would be delighted if you were to recommend this podcast to your friends. If you don't already get the People's Friend magazine delivered, because you listen to Reading Between the Lines, you have an exclusive offer to subscribe to get your first 13 issues for just £6. Check the episode notes for details and terms. And for more from The People's Friend, visit thepeoplesfriend.co.uk, subscribe to our newsletter, or find us on Facebook and Twitter. Hasty back! There's a dainty little journal that is read both far and near. It has had a host of rivals, still it stands without a peer. It is bright and entertaining from the first page to the end, and is known to its admirers as the dear old people's friend. A charming little journal is the friend. Of good things it is such a happy blend That to read it at your leisure is a pleasure without measure The friend to friends in trouble recommend They won't be happy till they get the friend <laughs>